I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 13 as we uh, pick up our study of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. And as you're turning there, and before we read it, uh, I just want to uh, give you some information beforehand because it is a bit of a tricky passage to read and understand. Uh, In this passage that we're going to read, the disciples remark on the, the wonders of the temple. It's a beautiful building. And uh, they're there, and they're leaving, and they're just making a remark. And it prompts Jesus to begin this discourse that lasts 37 verses of chapter 13, or, 30 or so, 35 verses of chapter 13 at least. Uh, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple in this passage. And the disciples are amazed at this, and they ask two questions. They ask, first of all, when will it happen? And also, what will be the signs uh, that these things are about to happen? Now, the disciples probably believed that such an amazing event as the destruction of the temple, I think the stones were uh, said to be 30 feet high, and Jesus says it's all going to be absolutely raised to the ground. Uh, They thought that surely meant that the world was going to end when the, when the temple was destroyed, that that would be a signal of judgment day. Therefore, when they ask when these things will be, they're asking when will the final judgment day be. But of course, we know now that the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was not the end of the world. Therefore, though the disciples don't know it, they're actually asking him about two separate events. The first event, of course, the destruction of the temple that happened around 70 A.D., between 66 and 70 A.D., when the Romans came in uh, to quell a a revolt, and they absolutely destroyed the temple. So Jesus is describing in this passage uh, not only the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., but the end of the world, which, of course, hasn't happened yet because we're still around, and we're still on this planet Earth. So when we look at this passage this is an important thing to remember, that they're asking one question, but Jesus is talking about two different events. And sometimes it's hard to tell which event he's actually talking about. Uh, He he does sometimes very specifically talk about the destruction of the temple that's going to happen in just a uh, couple of decades from when this was written. But he's also talking about the end of the world, judgment day and those sorts of things. So when we read this, we need to read it with those two things in mind. Uh, Maybe that will help clarify it a little bit. So without further ado, let's read Mark 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, 
For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak, and alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days." And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. Well, I really hate uh, warning lights on cars, especially the dreaded check engine light. You know, you're driving down the road, you're enjoying the scenery, Uh, You don't have a care in the world, and then boom, the check engine light comes on your car, and all that wonderful bliss is over. You can't relax. You become paranoid at at every sound the engine makes. You even create sounds in your mind that the engine is making, uh, and you're worried that you might break down somewhere or be stranded along along the side of the road. And you're nervous, rightfully so, because something very serious could be wrong with your car. Without that check engine light, uh, you would really be taken by surprise when your car does suddenly break down without warning, probably in a bad part of town. 
Now, of course, they've taken advantage of the old check warning light and make it when you turn over 100,000 miles or whatever it comes on. So false warnings. But that doesn't apply to the sermon. I just get irritated by these check engine lights, especially when there's something bad wrong because it means you're going to spend a lot of money. Well, in this passage before us this morning, uh, Jesus gives us a big check engine light. We would like to go through our lives in ignorant bliss, not thinking of the future, without a care in the world. But Jesus graciously gives us a warning light to wake us up from our slumber so we do not end it up in a bad place, stranded for eternity. In Mark 13, as we've just read, Jesus tell, tells his disciples four times to be on guard. Now that word, be on guard, comes from the word to see. And it means seeing literally and figuratively. He wants you to keep your eyes open. He wants you to physically see, to be on the watch, to be on the lookout. But he also means that figuratively, to, to understand, to have discernment, uh, to perceive and to be aware of and to watch out for and to pay attention to things. And then he also says repeatedly three times to stay awake. And that means to be alert, to be watchful, to be vigilant. Now, we would do well to pay attention to what Jesus says here so that we can not only pay attention to the words but pay attention as we live our lives out in the world. There are two matters here this morning in this passage to which we should pay attention. First, we should pay attention to the warnings about the world which Jesus gives here. And then second of all, we should pay attention to the promises Jesus makes here uh, concerning his return to earth. And this frames my remarks this morning. So first, let's pay attention to the warnings about the world that Jesus gives. And I've grouped them into three categories. The first is this. The world, Jesus tells us, is a broken place. If you look at verse 7, Jesus talks about hearing of wars and rumors of wars uh, and uh, uh, nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom and also earthquakes and famines. He speaks of all these things, and he could have added to the list a number of different items. He could have thrown in disease and pestilence and poverty and other natural disasters, maybe some that hit closer to home like hurricanes. There's also crime. He could have, he could have talked about all these in this list that he's making because he's talking about the brokenness of the world. And he says this, Do not be alarmed. It gets worse. Now, all these things are bad, but it's, it's, not, it's not the end yet. It's just bad, and it's going to get worse before the end comes. This is just the beginning. Now, of course, that's true. All these things that he lists here and the ones that I've listed and added to Jesus' list, uh, they're all things that are true of the world that have been true ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. Sin and brokenness entered the world and the earth had a curse placed on it because of mankind's sin. Sin brought death into the world, not immediate, but now we're subject to death and disease and, and pestilence. And the curse that God placed on the earth brought an upheaval in the natural order. Things didn't begin not to work like God uh, made them to work. We had to labor. There's weeds in the garden. 
there are earthquakes, there are famines, there are tornadoes, and there are hurricanes, and all these things. And this is the world we live in now. And when we look around us at the world and the direction that the world and our country is taking, Jesus tells us, don't be alarmed. I find that a bit shocking. Don't be alarmed at all these things. Because we're tempted to be alarmed when we look around us. But you know, we live in a broken world. Now, I'm not saying that we should become fatalistic. But if we live our lives with a naive opinion that this world is a friendly, great place, or that this world is all there is, then you don't understand sin and its consequences. Now, of course, there are some wonderful things about the earth and the people who live on it. The earth has incredible beauty. I mean, we'll fling those doors open in just a few moments and we'll look out across the beach there and it's the the beautiful ocean, lovely man-made beach out there, uh, glorious sunshine, beautiful day. And that's a great thing about the earth. And, And there are people in the world who are wonderful people that we love. Well, yes. People still bear the image of God, though it is marred. The earth... Uh, still has the marks of what God made it to be in it, though it's broken and it falls short of what God had intended it to be. But these things, the goodness of them, should not make us satisfied with the world or with people as they are. Rather, we should long for the world and for its people to be all that God intended it to be in sinless perfection. Of course, we're not going to achieve that until Christ returns. We'll talk about that in a moment. But we're kind of like that quote by C.S. Lewis. We're, We're like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the beach or at the mountains. And we would rather settle for what we know than to have something much greater. God has something much greater in store. So Jesus is warning us that this world is a broken place, not to be surprised about, by that. But he also tells us, not only, first of all, that the world is a broken place, he warns us that the world is a hostile place. It's a broken place, but also a hostile place. Look at verse 9. He tells us to be on our guard. They will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Verse 11, they will bring you to trial and deliver you over. Verse 12, brother will deliver brother over to death. Father, his child. Children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Verse 19, in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and ever will be. Now if we aren't convinced that the world is a broken place, all we have to do is to look at these, this hostility against Christians who would seek the Creator's best interests for the world. Christians want to see renewal and restoration of people in the created order, so you would think that the message of redemption that we share would be a welcome message. You go out in the world and you share that message and you'll find it's quite a different reception. Jesus tells us to be on guard about that. Don't be shocked or dismayed if the world hates you. It hated him. And don't be shocked or dismayed, dismayed if you suffer for following Jesus. Jesus is warning us about that. 
If you think the world is going to give you a warm reception and embrace when you live out your Christian profession and start telling people about it, you're going to be severely discouraged when the exact opposite happens. You're going to be hated for his name's sake. So be on guard for when it happens. Don't be anxious about it. God will guide you through it. He guides you through it, not away from it. He will guide you through it, through the fire, through the difficulties. And if you ignore Jesus' warning here, you will quickly abandon your profession of faith when the heat gets turned up by the world. So Jesus wants us to be on our guard for that. So not only does Jesus warn us that the world is a broken place, he warns us that the world is a hostile place, but he also tells us that the world is a deceptive place. Look at verse 5. Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And if you look at the original language in that, uh, what in verse 6, many will come in my name saying, and it literally is, I am. And of course that's the way you would say, I am he, in the language. But it's also the term uh, that the Septuagint uses for the name of God, Yahweh, I am. In, in the Greek it's ego a me. So maybe these people are claiming that they are gods. That they, and of course that's consistent with what he says about false Christs, false messiahs. So here are people, and I think of, well, your first impulse is to think of television preachers. I was talking to someone this morning about television preachers, these self-proclaimed messiahs who gather up people who follow them, and they're leading so many people astray because they don't know their Bibles. I listened to someone break down a sermon by a well-known uh, evangelical preacher. And this preacher used a scripture and he told the story and he embellished the story uh, to a degree that everybody was laughing and enjoying him telling the story. He inserted himself into the story uh, and uh, he kind of said, well, here's what I would be thinking you know, if Jesus did this and that. Uh, and, and he subtly changed the story completely around to prove a point that he wanted to make. And, of course, that point had to do with people giving money. And he was the person who is at the top of the pyramid scheme and is going to receive most of this money. But he used scripture. He came in Jesus' name. And there's people just loving it, throwing their money at him. If we get deceived, it's our own fault. If we don't know our, our scriptures... You know, when people who look for counterfeiters uh, try to, uh, how they train them to try to catch the counterfeiters, they don't give them the counterfeit money to study. They give them the, the true, real money to study. They know it so well that they can spot a fake anywhere. And that's, the, that's true of us as well. We need to know our Bibles. We need to know Jesus so well that we can spot a fake when it comes along, and there are many out there, Jesus tells us. He says it again in verse 21. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. I remember in 1988, a little booklet came out that said, 88 reasons Jesus would come out, at, uh, would return again in 1988. The next year he made a new book called 89 reasons the Lord is going to return in 1989. 
I don't know if he continued on. He might be still writing books to this day. But these are false prophets. Jesus tells us in this passage that no one knows the day or the hour, and yet people constantly are trying to predict it. We'll talk more about that in a moment, about that predicting thing. But the point here that I want to make overall, the world is a, uh, a broken world. It's a hostile place for Christians. It's a deceptive place that, where we can be led astray. Jesus warns us about the world here, and we need to pay attention that we not be caught off guard. John tells us, Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We can happily go through our lives like I do in the car when my check engine light goes on. You know, we can can ignore the warnings and carry on to our own peril. We can live our lives desiring, you know, pursuing those things that the flesh desires. You know, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. Oh, you know, we see that nice thing there. We want this. And we can spend our lives pursuing those things, particularly material things in our culture. And the pride of life. We can spend all of our time and energy building uh, our own proud little kingdom. But it's not from the Father. The world wants you to do that because the world wants to deceive you and bring you down. So Jesus is giving us this warning, these warnings about the world. But then, second of all, he he gives us many promises. So the second thing we need to pay attention to is the promises of Christ's return. And just as he gave us three categories, the world is a broken place, the world is a hostile place, and the world is a deceptive place, he answers those. First of all, the world is a broken place, but it's going to be redeemed when he returns. And that's a wonderful promise. He's going to return to fulfill the redemption that he began on the cross. Well, when he began, when he took on human flesh even. His return will mark the renewal of the created order. You look at verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. He's talking about uh, a cataclysmic upheaval of the universe. It's not just a spiritual uh, revolution or a political revolution that Jesus brings, but a a renewal of the entire physical universe. The physical world's not going to be renewed, not going to be removed, but it will be shaken, as it says here, and purged of all blemish and brokenness. And you can read about that in, in Peter's letters where he talks about the heavenly bodies melting away. And we know that's true because in the vision we have in Revelation, the end of Revelation, there's no sun in the new heavens and new earth because God is the light. Christ is the light there. There's no need for sun or moon or the stars. There will be a new heavens and new earth. And creation is now groaning for that, longing for that day. Creation is much smarter than we are sometimes because we're just happily riding along, enjoying this life, when we don't even look forward to what's coming. Verses 24 and 25 uh, show us that there's a renewal coming. And notice what it says in 26. As this renewal is ushered in, they will see, everybody will see the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds with great power and glory. Notice it says he's coming in clouds, not through the clouds, 
but in clouds. When you look at the Old Testament, when God appears on the scene, especially in the book of Exodus, how did he appear to the people? pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. When Solomon constructed the temple and he prayed over the temple and they dedicated it, God's glory cloud filled the temple and the priest could not even go in. This glory cloud in the Old Testament could only rest in or above the Holy of Holies and it was deadly to those who touched it. Now Jesus is coming back to turn the whole world into a giant holy of holies. He's going to come in all of his glory to the earth. And it's called the Shekinah glory. And this Shekinah presence of God will fill the earth as it once did in the Garden of Eden. Everything will be purified, beautified, glorified, and renewed. That's something to look forward to. We can become satisfied with this world there's something more in store for us. So the world is a broken place, but the Lord, when he returns, is going to redeem it and renew it. Now, the world is a hostile place, yes, but there will be judgment. He will return with justice. Look at verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. He gathers his elect, which refers to the fact that there are many people who do not belong to him and will be rejected and separated, sadly. And this is Judgment Day he's referring to. A great division is made uh, within humanity. And that's something we need to be remembering as we live in a hostile world. We want to take revenge. We We want to have our anger assuaged somehow. We want justice to be done. But the fact that Christ is returning promises that we will see justice one day. And we don't have to take it into our own hands. God is going to put everything right that is wrong. God is going to put down all his and our enemies. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that gives us great comfort in an increasingly hostile world in which we live. So the world is a hostile place, but judgment is coming, and God's going to put everything right. Finally, the world is a deceptive place, but the truth will be known. It tells us here in verse 26 that they will see. Who will see? Who's going to see the Son of Man when he returns? You know, the false, false prophets said, oh, Jesus is over there, you need to go over there. Or he's over here, here he is. That's not the way it's going to happen. He's going to return, as Revelation 1-7 tells us, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. See, in his first, in his first coming, Jesus came in weakness as a servant to suffer for evil. But the next time will be totally different. He will come in strength and glory as a ruler to destroy evil. He will come in a form that is beautiful and majestic and glorious, and there will be no mistake when he returns. Everybody will see it, and the false teachers will be seen to be what they are. You know, have you ever experienced, uh, maybe you enjoyed something of lesser quality, like a car, 
You know, I, I can become satisfied with my car. I'm hung up on cars today for some reason. Maybe it's because my car is less than glorious. And as I ride around it, I can be satisfied with that. But then you hop in someone else's car, and it's so much nicer. And the ride's so much better. And you realize all that was wrong with your car, even more than you, you might have known some things were wrong with the car. But now you really know, because it, it really stinks. And this other car is so great. You know, the faults prophets, the false teachers, the false messiahs, they look great now, but when Jesus returns, there's not going to be any mistake about who is the real Messiah, who is the real King of kings and Lord of lords. In fact, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So as we hear these warnings and promises How should we respond? Jesus tells us that we should not be derailed by a broken world or the hostile reception that we received or people trying to deceive us, but to work, to be prepared, to be awake, be alert, be watchful that these things are occurring and will occur, to not be surprised by them, but also to do the work. He tells us in the last few verses, he gives us this picture of a man who goes on a journey and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, he said, stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. So stay awake. So what is our work? What should we be doing as we wait for the master to return well our temptation is to to plan his return out you know a lot of people do that they get into prophecy and they want to know when is it all going to happen and what are the signs just like the disciples of course it's a natural tendency we all have but i heard a preacher say one time uh he said you know i when i first started studying the bible i got all excited about prophecy and i said you know we need to really work on this and figure this out And then some wiser pastor came alongside of him and said, son, you need to get off the planning committee and get get on the welcoming committee. God's in control of these things. We don't have to plan it all out. He's in control. The world's history is running in a linear pattern, and there's an end in sight. And God's in control of it, and he has a plan for it. And in the end, he triumphs. He wins. So take great comfort in that. And in the meantime, as it says in verse 10, the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. May God give us grace to heed the warnings, to take hold of the promises, to stay awake and alert, and in the meantime, proclaim the gospel with our lips and with our lives wherever we go. Let's pray together.